Whatever you believe, whether you're a staunch pro-life, pro-choice advocate, you don't know. You really don't know everything there is to know. I see people on both sides of the extremes feeling oh so righteous. And my goal is to have people not be so comfortable with what they believe. That's Patrice Diamato. She's a nurse who spent much of her 40-year career providing abortion care. She's never thought of herself as an activist, but as the polarizing debate about abortion raged on, Patrice realized that the real problem is our perception. So she decided to do something about that. I thought, you know what, it's time. You know, you're gonna sit down and you're gonna write. And then I thought, would you like to know what I know? Would you like to go where I've gone? Because I am ready to tell you. On this episode, we sit down with Patrice to hear what being an abortion care provider is really like and about the fascinating book she wrote to try to shift perspectives on the issue. Patrice's book, The View from the Clinic, challenges what we think we know about abortion and shines a light on what those beliefs are really built on. Welcome to The Breakout a show about smashing through life's little boxes and forging your own path. I'm Dr. Carrie Ulrich. And I'm Kelly Gunther. Carrie and I are people and change experts and best friends. We've spent more than 25 years helping organizations navigate change and get the best out of their people. Come on, we know change is hard, but staying the same can even be harder. On The Breakout, we prove that you can escape expectations and best of all, we show you how. My name's Patrice Diamato, and I am a nurse with many years of experience, some of those working in an abortion clinic. And my goal today is just to talk a little bit about that experience and really help people break out of the mindsets that they may have that what they assume to happen in an abortion clinic. First of all, we could have maybe 16 podcasts with you talking about healthcare, <laughs> talking right. uh, just about healthcare. And so why don't you first tell us about your career in nursing, kind of where did you begin and how did you end up doing and being involved in abortion care? I think I'm coming up on 40 years in nursing. So I was a very, very young, people always say, well, how old are you? I was 20 years old when I graduated as a registered nurse. And so I always laugh and tell people that I I could give morphine all day at work, but I wasn't old enough to go out for a drink after work. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not I love kidding. that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I've been a nurse really my whole adult life and, you know, did a variety of things, you know, everything from the typical medical surgical. And then I worked in a very cool but exhausting um, and difficult neurosurgical and trauma ICU for a couple of years. And really, for a lot of reasons, decided that it was my love and my calling to, to teach. I found that out teaching some new nurses. And then I went over and flipped over, got my master's degree as a nurse practitioner and decided that I'd had enough of hospitals. I couldn't stand it one more day. But I really wanted to get out into the community and just get out of the sterile and artificial environment that we put people in when they go into hospitals. So this job came up. I saw a women's health nurse practitioner job at our local abortion clinic. And, you know, something in me, I was like, oh, I'm 
I'm going to check that out. I am not a warrior, okay? I was tired. I had two little kids at home. It was around the corner. It wasn't in the city. It had free parking. (laughs) (laughs) And the administrator, as I, you know, steeled myself in this place that you just can't even believe when you walk in because it's so surreal. She said to me, she's like, listen, no sick people, no old people, no frail people. (laughs) This is all young, healthy patients who walk out with a new lease on life after a surgery. It's like a surgery center, an ambulatory surgery center. And so there I was, I was like, free parking, no weekends, no nights around the corner. Okay. And there I was. A warrior was born. (laughs) Even though there's free parking, it was around the corner and you deserve a break, especially raising two little ones. But you still knew what you were kind of getting yourself into with an abortion clinic. When you started, what were you seeing in the abortion clinics that you felt was different from what the outside world felt about abortion? You know, and I guess I would say that outside world, that was my world too. Mm -hmm. I mean... So I would say, not knowing what everybody's perspective is, um, my outside view and what my expectations were, were that, you know, it's an unsavory place, a little kind of gross place to be. And I, I remember doing my clinical rotations and I did one in women's health and You know, we would talk about patients who were having an abortion, but they just went there, that place, like, ew. Mm. So it was very ew to me, which again, I guess I thought, you know what? I wonder if it really is as gross and weird as people think it is. So I decided, you know, even just going for that interview and wading through a packed waiting room with all kinds of people, I mean all kinds of people, waiting for hours. That, I think, shocked me the most because I really thought, you know, oh, well, who has abortions? You know, in my mind, it was, you know, teenagers, you know, with the blonde ponytail. I thought of fallen mistresses. I thought of exciting people or ladies of the night or something (laughs) like that. I mean, of course, those people are there, but overwhelmingly... It was like working class moms. That's who it mostly was. And the research bears that out. Most women who are having an abortion already have some kids. And they're, they just, they can't do this again yeah. for a variety of reasons, you know? What happened that you felt that you needed to write the book? So you're going through this process and then you're like, I'm going to write a book about this experience. Yeah. So I walked away after like eight years or so working in abortion care. And, you know, I do speak of the one crystallizing moment. You know how there's that moment in a job where you're like, okay, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And even though you didn't leave, you may not leave for a while. It might be months, might even be years. But there is usually that defining moment that you can look at and say, okay, I'm done. For me, you know, the day that hit me right between the eyes, they had screwed around with my schedule because the doctor wanted to like go do uh, his car racing somewhere. And it really irritated me. It changed. (laughs) It screwed up all my daycare plans. And I was like, really, really, we're doing this. So, you know, I was annoyed. I'm going into work and waiting past the protesters and they're out there waving their signs with the baby doll limbs hanging off of them. I'm annoyed that I, you know, we're rearranging our world for some old guy who needs to race his cars. And then, you know, I go inside and I see, it just hit me. I was like, my God, I saw like some teenagers. I was like, okay, the people that are outside protesting right now, these are their children. 
And I thought, I can't change this. So that was the beginning of the end for me. And then I just let it sit. 20 years went by. I didn't really even think much about the abortion issues. I'd look at it and I'd just roll my eyes and say, I don't even know where to begin. We don't have it together to even discuss this. And I didn't have it together in myself to try to explain it. But then fast forward, what made me snap was the Me Too movement. I had semi-retired. I started hearing this Me Too stuff. And I was listening the one day where this politician was talking about taxing women's um, sanitary products. And there's a lot of pushback about making them non-taxable. So this politician is like, well, I don't understand why this is a necessary item. I mean, you just go to the bathroom and pee it out and then you go on your way. Why would you... Why Why shouldn't we tax that? This is a luxury item. Oh, my God. And I heard more, you know, more, you can't get pregnant if you're not in love. And so I thought, you know what, Miss Patrice, you're a nurse. It's time. You know, you're going to sit down and you're going you're gonna to write. And I thought, all right, how am I going to draw people into what I know? What do I know? And then I thought, oh, oh, let's just go with abortion because it's so sexy. It's just so sexy. And would you like to know what I know? Would you like to go where I've gone? Because I am ready to tell you. So that's how it started. I had no idea that Roe versus Wade was going to go down. So that all transpired at the same time. I was terrified to do this. Not terrified to write, but terrified to put it out there the way I wanted to and needed to say this because I really felt that it would be incredibly misunderstood. And I wrote it in the context of what happened over 20 years ago because I don't want to violate anybody's privacy. See, this is the trick for somebody writing from a healthcare perspective. You can't really disclose a whole lot of facts about patients. But the stories are so real. So I was thinking, all right, 20 years have gone by. Let me de-identify all these people and I'll consolidate their stories. I'll change things around. But people have to hear the real stories. But it was about telling the truth in a way that would protect my patients and me and my family. Carrie and I were blown away by Patrice's casual courage to not only do this job, but then to tell these really difficult stories. She's more of a badass than I think she gives herself credit for as she walks through picket lines on a daily basis. I think for me, there's always a, there's always a great story in someone. There's always something that someone has to say. That's why Kelly and I love talking to everyday people. It doesn't have to be a Serena Williams or Michael Jordan. It's lots of people who all over are trying to do different things. And she saw this gap and she wants to fight for knowing the truth and being authentic about it. Just her humility to not to tell one side of the story, but to tell the whole story and then mm -hmm. to allow someone to draw their own conclusions. In the book, you write about people need to be a fly on the wall and know what really goes on inside an abortion clinic. Why do you say that? 
You know, when somebody asked me, well, why would you write this? And they said, who are you writing for? You know, who's your ideal reader? So I really had to think about who that was. And I thought, you know, about myself, you know, as a person who maybe didn't live with an intimate view of this. And I thought about my friends and people who say, tell me, what's it like? And I thought, okay, here's my prototype. I actually wrote this not in a scholarly way. It is, as one scholar said, more like a girlfriend's guide to abortion, which I laughed and I said, absolutely, that's exactly what I want. I don't need a social policy treatise on this. I'm a clinician. And what I want to do is tell people what it is. So the fly on the wall, I think of people who are just kind of chit-chatting at a book club. I always say the soccer mom, you know, who is like watching YouTube videos and doing yoga and, you know, trying to raise their kids in a world that makes some kind of sense. So I really started to think, let me just tell you what it is. Because I felt like if we understand what it is, what exists, then we can get our head around destigmatizing it, talking about it in support of each other, because one in every four women that you know has had an abortion. One in every four. It is the most commonly performed medical procedure on women in the United States today. So I thought about how sad it is that we cannot feel like it's an okay thing to talk about because we'll be ostracized. So my my goal was really to demystify it, to bring it forward. Listen, we can't even talk about ovarian cysts or miscarriages. It's just not nice cocktail party conversation. But I love the new willingness to share. I mean, you might laugh and say it's too much sharing, but I think We need to hear stories and to demystify all of this. Mm -hmm. I think you're you're so right. I'd rather us overshare a bit to have the pendulum swing all the way to then oversharing, to settle down to kind of a place where people want to be because you're right, people don't share. When I had my miscarriage, even I shared it and people were like, oh... That's a lot. And I'm like, did you know that this happens to like 40 or 50? I mean, it was such a high percentage of of women that this happens to and miscarriage. And I even had a friend say, oh, yeah, I had one, but I didn't tell anyone. And yet we can talk about erectile dysfunction and have commercials for Viagra on Major League Baseball games, right? All the time. We can talk about the penis all the time, Patrice, but God forbid we talk about the vagina. So I love what you're doing. You're, you're letting kind of this light shine. What are some of the surprising myths about abortion that you write about? And how do some of those myths tell you how we form beliefs as well? The biggest shocker for everybody, but it is not a secret. It is that this idea of being pro-life is very, very new, Mm. extremely new. The idea of the moment that an egg is fertilized by a sperm, that it's a life, That has only occurred since the 80s. It's only about 20 or 30 years old. So when you go back through the history of where did this idea come from, the sanctity of the fetus is what I call it. I'm calling it like, this is the time of the fetus. Because throughout history, no one ever entertained the thought that the 
fetus had a soul. I mean, Aristotle started with the thought that was somewhere like, like halfway through the pregnancy. And then it was kind of formed through later Catholic thought that the fetus becomes ensouled around 40 days of age for a male gestation and 80 days for female gestation. <laughs> of course, longer for it. <laughs> I heard that. Whatever. Okay, whatever. That's I a heard whole that. Other, yeah. yeah, it's totally made up. Oh my it is God. absolutely Ridiculous. totally made up. But what really interested me was that for hundreds of years, no one considered it a problem to terminate a pregnancy until there was quickening, until you, the woman felt the fetus move. Abortion was fine fine. It was moral. It was okayed by everybody until only in the last 150 or so years, the late 1800s, really the turn of the century was when people started to say, I think it's immoral. And where it really became immoral, it was because of the American Medical Association formation. So we didn't have certified doctors at that time, at around 1900. We had a lot of people who practiced medicine and surgery, and there were women who were, you know, midwives or abortionists. There's ads in the paper, you know, for you to get your abortions. It, it was perfectly fine. And what happened was the American Medical Association formed, and one of the first things they did was medicalize pregnancy and childbirth and say, well, we cannot have these witchy midwife people doing God knows what with our fine, upstanding white suburban wives. Mm -hmm. The birth rate was dropping and they were getting very concerned. And it was actually interestingly targeted, you know, towards upper middle class uppity white wives. So one of the first things they did was they, they medicalized pregnancy and childbirth and abortion. And they put into place the Comstock laws, which forbid any practicing healthcare provider to speak about birth control or pregnancy termination. So that is how it slowly infiltrated our culture. It was never a problem and it was fine up till you started to feel the baby kick, which is around 20 weeks. That's so fascinating. And yet I just think of all these other um, situations, Patrice, where it was okay. And then someone came in either to make money, to control someone And then all of a sudden, the belief system has changed. We could talk to you so long. I have one more question. How is abortion connected to how society constructs ideas of motherhood? Wow, that is such a great question. And as a mother myself and soon-to-be grandmother, Mm. I love this question. I think you and I were already talking about how kind of in our heads before we knew stats, it seemed like more single people. And so the fact that a lot of mothers have abortions, it almost seems like they're sometimes mutually exclusive that, you know, if you've had an abortion, you'll never be a mother. If you're a mother, you've never had an abortion kind of thing. Yeah, it's so intertwined. I'm actually going to pull in a little bit of a reference to an excellent study that was done out of University of California at San Francisco called the Turnaway Study. What they did was they looked at women who went to an abortion clinic and some of them were turned away and some of them were able to terminate the pregnancy. And they followed them for five five to 10 years to see what was going on. The women who had children already who were able to terminate their pregnancies had 
outcomes that were so much better for them and their children than the women who were forced to carry to term. So I think intrinsically, women know when they they have children that they already have to take care of, they have to make some choices. Mm-hmm. And, and they make choices for, for their babies. And it, it was quite clear. So the women that were turned away for a variety of reasons. They didn't fare as well. They were depressed. They made less money. They loved their kids. And so I think that's where people get really uncomfortable and confused about this. They think, well, you know, you aborted, so that means, you know, you didn't love them. Or what if you're the teenage, you know, a teenager? You wanted to abort me? Do you not love me? And it's like, no, I love you more than you can imagine. I just have to make decisions. And so really, they're so linked. And to be able to listen to women, because again, you know, the people who are making these decisions for them are not housing their children. They're not feeding them. They're not sending them to school. You know, despite all the promises of all this social support, it's it's not happening. This is not an easy decision. And most women come to it with a lot of clarity and a lot of deep thought. 80% of women who abort report later on, overwhelmingly, the guilt is not there. Not very often. It's relief. You know, it was tough. It wasn't a pretty decision. It wasn't, a, you know, it was a tough experience. But as we do as women, you know, we buckle up. We, you know, put the kids in the car seat, get back to work and start paying the daycare bills again, right? So really, it's so tied to uh, women knowing themselves and not just allowing them to make their decisions, but to honor them and know that the decisions that they make are key. And the women who struggle are women who have feel terrible guilt because they're super religious. They often come from conservative evangelical backgrounds. And so when it happens to them, it can be a crisis. Kelly and I thought we knew about this issue, but Patrice gave us so much more to think about. When you and I mentioned that we teared up when she talked about, you know, you're doing it out of love. Mm-hmm. These are not decisions that are made in a vacuum. And they're not made in haste. It comes from a a deep place of wanting to do what's right for a variety of parties. Yeah, I think that belief that you are selfish, that you are doing it out of purely selfish reasons, and it is such a pervasive expectation that women should be so thrilled to have a baby. Like, that's just bottom line. That's the expectation. You should be so happy that you're pregnant. You will love this baby and you want to be a mother, even though you say you don't want to. And so I think that expectation is so pervasive. It's probably one of the most pervasive across all religion, race, nationality. So to then say, I'm going to have an abortion and be public about it, and that backlash, talk about breaking out of a box and then you have all of society judging you plus your own personal family plus just whatever inside you feel that's Mm -hmm. just rough it's a procedure you want to take time off of work to heal it's psychological it's mental it's emotional it's everything and the fact that you feel like you can't openly talk about it is the problem in this world (music) 
now I'm up to 20 episodes with you, Patrice, but I know Kelly has, <laughs> Kelly has so many beautiful questions for you. So Kelly, what are some of your, your reactions and thoughts? I know you shared, Patrice, the idea of what really propelled you to want to write the book. How did you really find the courage within you to do it? You know, I think I went through a pretty deep spiritual crisis myself. And that's what usually propels us to do things in life and to take chances, right? You know, for a lot of people, it's, you know, all kinds of things. For me, the deaths back to back of my parents, they both had dementia. And I think I was at a a breaking point um, with all of that and raising kids. And I had a sister who died at age 32 with some mental health issues. So, you know, I think it's that thing that makes you sort of snap and say, fuck it. You know what? I am going to be who I am. I'm going to use my voice. I'm going to speak. And I felt a compulsion to, you know, kind of raise my hands up to the sky and say, what do you want from me? Why am I here? What purpose can I serve that nobody else probably could? And it was really clear. I didn't want to write this book. I didn't. And it was so clear after hearing, you know, getting some of those hits of clarity. You know what, Patrice, look at who you are. Look at what you know. How many people have the combination of being a nurse practitioner, loving to write, and having enough moral outrage at the patriarchy to do this? And I thought I could write about something more, you know, interesting to me. You know, to me, it is a minor surgical procedure, major emotional overhaul. Okay. So it wasn't something that I even wanted to do. But when I sort of opened myself up to the universe and said, all right, I'm here to serve. What is it? What do you have for me? It was so clear. So, you know, it's that moment, right? Like, I know I'm here to do something. It's so compelling. And I, as I was reading, you know, some of the reviews of your book, words like humility, courage, humor, you know, kind of sprinkled throughout the reviews, people really appreciating you taking the time to share your experiences, because it's often something, you know, we don't think about what is it like to actually work in an environment like that and to see the stories. What is it that you want people to get out of the book? If there were three top things that you wanted them to get out of it, what would you say those things are? Three things. The first thing and the main thing is It's the cliche, walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. There are a lot of stories coming out of from very, very brave people who are talking about their own abortions. But there's very little about healthcare providers and what it does to us and for us and how does it change us as human beings because we are human beings. So I think that's one of the the big takeaways for me is to walk a mile in, in my shoes and see what I see. And it's a love letter to nurses and what we do, how are we in service to the world? And I guess finally, it's just to think differently, just to entertain the thought that you, whatever you believe, whether you're a staunch pro-life or pro-choice advocate, you don't know. You really don't know everything there is to know. 
about that. I see people on both sides of the extremes feeling oh so righteous. And, and my goal is to have people not be so comfortable with what they believe. Of course, everybody thinks the pro-life, that old white man that's standing on the sidewalk. My goal is for you to understand him and see him within yourself because it's there. And until you can do that, until you can really walk a mile in his shoes and understand his idealism of the sanctity of life, you know, oh, you have to understand that in order to be able to embody a new way of being. And the same for, you know, the ultra staunch radical feminist pro-choice person who has fought their whole life for somebody to have the right to be able to choose. And maybe some of the limitations of that as well, it's pretty restrictive. And those people, as well as healthcare providers, I think the problem is we don't allow people to grieve. It's it, There's grief, there's mourning, there's ambiguity, and we're so busy fighting that we're not really allowing people to really open up and grieve and say, this was not fun, this was sad. And so we really have to be able to open people to those things within themselves. And I believe that's what we need to do to heal. So those are the things that I really truly hope inspire people. This isn't about me becoming an author. You know, I, I did this. I, it was my gift. My husband always said, even if you reach a handful of people, you're shifting, you know, we're shifting the energy on the planet. And that's what it's about for me. Well, we're so grateful to you, Patrice, for sharing your story with us, sharing the book, and for helping to share a little bit of insight about what it's been like for you over the last you know, 20 years. We're so grateful to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Patrice. You're amazing. Oh my gosh. 25 more episodes with Patrice. That's yes. what I'm saying. <laughs> part one of a 25-part series. Exactly. <laughs> the entire year. Exactly. <laughs> I just thought, you know, as we're talking, Cal, just women kick ass. That's mm-hmm. all I have to say. Like all the yeah. shit we have to do. And then we have to decide if we're going to have an abortion or not. Like we have to do all that. And then here's the dude like telling us that we can't do it. So overall, Kelly, as usual, women kick fucking ass. Exactly. Hashtag it. If this episode inspired you or made you think, give us a five-star rating and spread the word. It helps us reach more people who just might need these stories. And don't forget to subscribe to The Breakout so you never miss a new episode. I'm Kelly Gunther. And I'm Dr. Carrie Ulrich. See you next time.